Well, the Bible invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good, and blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, Psalms 34, 8. And I hope that's your experience this morning, having uh, found that to be true. And if not, we'd love to talk to you after the service and how that um, promise is given to you. Open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going through a study in the Gospel of John here on Sunday mornings for those of you visiting with us. And we've been looking, working our way through the first chapter. We come to the end of it, beginning in verse 43. That's where I'll begin reading. John, chapter 1, verse 43. The Bible says the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law, also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good, anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and apply it to our hearts. Well, we all have different stories here this morning, different different backgrounds, different uh, ways we grew up, different ways God brought us to himself. would be a uh, good exercise. I won't do it for the sake of time, but just to walk through and hear some of those and uh, stories this morning. There's a variety of ways God works in the lives of people. You might recall in our passage this morning and our scripture reading was the conversion of Paul or that statement of Paul in First Timothy. He was a he was kind of one of those night and day difference uh, when he encountered Christ. He was a man who came and persecuted the church, set himself against Christianity and Christians. In fact, he was taking the initiative to stomp out Christianity uh, of going and and getting papers and arresting people, consenting to the death of Stephen and many more atrocities. So it is remarkable when you find 2 Timothy, the letter that he gives to uh, Timothy, the second letter he writes to him and personally, that he is awaiting his death for his testimony of Jesus Christ. Beginning, we are introduced with him as a, a hater of Christ at the end, one who is willing to give his life for the gospel. Well, not everyone has such a dramatic night and day kind of encounter. Uh, some of you were saved as a child, I'm sure, and, and as a child, um, because of the grace of God in your life, you have been spared many scars that others carry. Praise God for that. You should never long for someone else's story because you don't know what all goes into that. Be grateful for how God has worked in your life. 
uh, and spared you from some of those things. Others are, they grew up, they lived life, maybe because of their parents or where they lived, that they just had a kind of moral, ethical bent towards them, and they were just a decent human being, uh, or all the makings of a decent human being anyway. I remember uh, a gentleman that was that attended our church. He was a really nice guy, loved his family, uh, just really pleasant gentleman to be around. He was about to have surgery, and so I went over to his house to pray with him the day before, and uh, I sat down and said, so how can I pray for you? What's going on? He, he just looked at me straight in the eye and says, I need to be saved. And I thought to myself, out of all the outward appearance, he would look like one who was following Jesus because he was just a decent person. And yet he knew and saw his desperate need of Christ. So whether it was him or whether it was Paul or anywhere in between, you and I, we're both in desperate need and the need is met in Jesus Christ. The answer is all the same. It takes just as much grace to save a moral person, some might say even more than it does to someone who is stomping out Christianity with hatred. It is the grace of God that works in a person's life that, that brings that regeneration, that new birth. Well, our testimony is what leads or the events that take place in that, that coming to Christ and believing or putting your faith in him, however you want to word that. It, it tells us something about ourselves and about our circumstances and, or about someone else. And it's always good. Maybe you've done that. It's a good practice to do when you talk to someone, getting to know them. Well, tell me your story. How did you come to faith in Christ? How did you get where you're at? And how did God work in your life? And, and so you, you begin seeing God's grace and a little bit about them. But it is also a story or, or a testimony, a statement more so about Jesus and his goodness and his faithfulness than it is about the person being saved. I think John wants to underline that for us here in the calling of the disciples. There are many things you could say about the disciples, many, uh, many details that you could give about these men. But what he wants us to see and come to understand is the Savior who is calling them and working in their lives. He teaches us, not in the way Paul teaches us, by making a statement of fact and then telling you to go do something. Uh, he doesn't teach us that way. What he does is he brings us into the narrative and the encounter of someone with Christ. And through that encounter, he is meant to, to show us, reveal to us, open up to us something about ourselves that's true, but, but something more importantly and significantly about Christ. John does that all through the gospel. The other writers do the same. They teach us and show us through these stories and illustrations, these true events, by the way, of what we might come to know a little more about Jesus. In fact, John does through the calling of the disciples, and even with this obscure disciple named Nathaniel here in verse number 45, he, he does what, what the disciples are doing with one another. He's basically saying, come and see. But don't come and see Nathaniel or Philip or Andrew, or the disciple wouldn't even use his own name, or Peter. But come and see Jesus. And that's hard for us. There's, there's hurdles in that for you and me. I put us all in the same boat because I'm up here and I can do that, but I think it's true. It's hard because, well, let me just give you a few reasons. We're easily distracted. 
slightest sound or the, the, the notification on your phone or the, oh, now leave the stove on or maybe we'll go over here for dinner. And so you come together in a place like this where you hear some guy speak for 45 minutes or 40 or maybe 30, Lord willing, who knows? <laughs> I'm not telling you how long it's going to be this morning, but you hear a guy speak and in the midst of that, someone saying, you need to see Jesus, you, your mind is filled with distractions, but not just your mind in a moment like this. We live constantly in life filled with distractions. Our, our study and quiet time, our time in the Word, uh, it is a battle of distractions, is it not? There's a few honest souls here this morning like Nathaniel, praise the Lord. But not because we're so easily distracted, but also because we are so familiarized with these accounts for many of us. We've heard these since we were children. Stories of Nathaniel and Peter and all the other accounts of, of turning water to wine and all those things. It's, I'm looking forward to that. It'll be exciting and pray for my preparation for that. But we become familiar with these. And so in becoming familiar, we miss again what God wants us to see in the moment. We, we miss Christ through the stories and the accounts that we already know. It's not that we need to erase what we know is that we need to, to come back to, to meditate and to be amazed at what we have come to learn. And that is very challenging for us. But thirdly, and let's just be honest, we just want to get up and do something. Anything, doesn't matter what it is. And so when someone calls us, whether it's uh, uh, coming here this morning or something else, to, to sit and ponder for a moment, we think, well, we should be cleaning, we should be doing this. I don't, I don't know how many times I've thought in the study when I'm supposed to be studying that I could rearrange my office and my books by alphabetical order. <laughs> we want to do something. Some of you may would rather chop a tree than sit down in a class. Let's be honest, right? With a hatchet. You, you'd just soon chop it with a hatchet than sit down in a class. But what John wants us to see, what God wants us to understand is that seeing Jesus is no idle work. And the benefit of it is life-giving. And so he invites us through the encounter of Philip and Nathaniel, the other men that we find here in the Gospel of John, to come and see and behold him one more time. The first thing we notice, beginning in verse number 43, is we see a Savior who seeks. Notice the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Isn't it interesting that you find this language of the disciples finding Jesus? And so Andrew comes to Peter and said, we have found him, the Messiah. Philip will go to Nathaniel and said, we have found the Messiah. And that's right language to use because they were going along, they were anticipating, and they came upon, it came to them, they, they seen him, they come to understand who he is, and so they found him. But even through that finding beneath it and above it all is the reality that it is Jesus who has found them. It is Jesus who has come to, uh, to give life and life more abundantly. Now, everyone was seeking and looking for something. And it's no doubt true in Jesus' age. There were disciples were coming to look uh, for the one who 
John the Baptist was pointing out, this is he whom I've been telling you about. There's others in chapter number 6 who are seeking Jesus for the food. He fed them. They're like, where's meal number 2? Where's breakfast? You know, we need our second lunch or whatever it may be. We, you did good, do it again. What you find a lot of in the Gospel of John, we won't turn to there, but you'll see it over and over in chapter number 8, 37 is one place you can jot down, look it up, is many of Jesus' own people seeking him, not for life, not even for the food or the benefits he might give, but they're seeking to put him to death. There may be some principle in this that they that seek will find, but there is the truth that not everyone seeks the same thing throughout the Gospel of John. However, Jesus is said here to have found Philip. Not that Philip was off lost somewhere and Jesus lost sight of him, as we'll see, but this kind of language of him delivering him, bringing him, calling him to himself. It's, it's a common language we can use. In fact, what you find is he is the one that found all the disciples. They were looking, they were waiting, they were trusting, they were hoping But at the end, it was not Jesus who was lost. It was them. In fact, Jesus reiterates that at the end of his gospel. You did not choose me, but I chose you that you may go bring forth fruit. And there's some encouragement in that because that is the very reason Jesus came. In Luke's account, chapter number 19, verse 10, the Bible says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We might go back to what Paul read, or Bob read for us, the letter or the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners whom I am the foremost. And one way summing up the whole mission and purpose of Christ coming into the world. More that could be said about that. It it could be filled out in many other ways. But that the thrust of the message of Christ coming into the world is to call men to himself. Women to himself. Children to himself. To save sinners. It's good news for us because after all we're all sinners. One requirement to be saved is to be lost. The Bible says that's a boat we all are in. And so he says here, Jesus, his sole mission is to come. And John reminds us over and over that it is Jesus who has come. He's come into the world. Verse number 9 of chapter 1, he dwelt among us. He is the one who has come from the Father. And he is the one that we find here in verse 43 who bids us to follow him. Follow me. Come after me. Go where I'm going in the direction I'm going. Put your trust in me as he will remind him later on at the end of the gospel. And it's this very thing he's doing now in our day. It's the reminder of Jesus, his purpose, his plan is is come into the world to redeem, to save those who are lost. And call them to follow him. Now I don't know if you agree with me or not, but we have followed a lot of people in the world. You follow people on, you follow plans, you follow agendas, you follow your own way and your own wisdom. The Bible says there's a way that seems right unto the man. At the end, it's death and destruction. 
So Jesus comes into a world to a people that that are following all of their devices, all of their schemes, all of their their ideas and all of their plans and saying, that's not going to make it. Come and follow me. That's what he's telling us today. You've followed all of these things and there have been no life from it. But I am the way, the truth, and the life, and so we must follow him. I want to say that there's a bit of encouragement there for us as a church. Namely, God did not send you out, or Christ does not send you out, commission you to go tell of a Savior who's reluctant to save sinners. One who is waiting and, and kind of for the right time. But he tells us to go share a message about a Savior who is actively willing his purpose and his mission is to seek and to save those who are lost. Isn't that good news when you go share your faith? Isn't that good news when you think about your family and your loved ones, those that are near you and dear you as you lift them up in prayer, that as I pray for their salvation, I'm praying to a God who sent his only begotten son into the world to save sinners. Now there's encouragement as we come to find Christ as the one who seeks us. One who is actively at work to accomplish the same thing we seek to do. Amen? So we should take encouragement there. But secondly, not only do we see a Savior who seeks, we find that as he finds Philip, little is said about Philip here. He's mentioned again later on in the gospel. But Philip is a lot like Andrew. Instead of finding his brother, as some suggest, Philip and Nathaniel as being brothers, they may be close friends. Some suggest maybe they're, they're business partners or, or whatever the case may be. There's, there's at least some closeness here in relationship to Nathaniel. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the same place that Andrew and Peter was from, and John and James. He may have been a fisherman as well. It was a fishing community. And so the, the, the very next thing he does, now maybe he does this when they get to Galilee. It's probably the best understanding of the passage here in verse 45. But the very next thing he does is he goes and tells Nathaniel, verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so you see this, the, the, the single... Or the simple, the, the natural thing that Philip does. It's the thing that we do. We tend to complicate things a lot, don't we? But Philip found Jesus, was found by Jesus, and he goes to Nathaniel, his friend, to tell him, look at what we've found. Look at who has come into the world. Look at who it is. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's the fulfillment of all who, all who have been trusting God, been waiting on have been waiting on so we see not only as a savior who seeks but i want you to notice in this encounter of philip and nathaniel and jesus we see a savior who sees it's kind of unusual because it's hard to talk about this without talking about nathaniel and we have a little bit about nathaniel here in the text and so i'm just give you a few points about him as we work through this nathaniel is only mentioned um here Later in the Gospel of John, his name is mentioned. This is the most detail, pretty much all we know about him, other than legend or legend, probably not a good word to use. I'll come up. History tells us that he died. That's a good reason. He was martyred uh, in Armenia um, somewhere around 44 
uh, A.D., somewhere in that vicinity. It was said that Nathaniel, or a gospel of um, Matthew, was found in India that was left by Nathaniel uh, during his trip or his visit, his missionary journey. His name in the other gospels is Bartholomew. People don't normally name their kids that, I don't think, but nevertheless, Bartholomew, uh, which means something like the son of Ptolemy, or Tholemy. You can work out which one that means. It's like Johnson, the son of John. Is that right, Al? Is that how that works? Anyway, uh, so Nathaniel was his regular, his normal name that he would have went by. Nevertheless, here he is described for us as as a man who was from Galilee. Now look at it with me. Um, Nathanael said unto him, We have found, or now Philip was from Bethsaida, city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. So he's coming to the town of Nathanael, Philip, and Philip begins to tell him at least what we know about Nathaniel, and that is he knew his Bible. He was one who was waiting for the Messiah. He understood what the, what the prophets wrote and what the Old Testament said. He was a man who had studied, he learned, he, he was raised and taught the scriptures from a child, as most Jewish young men were, until around the age 14, something like that. And so he would have probably had a lot of the Old Testament Many passages memorized in the Old Testament, different things in his discipline growing up. But not only is he one who is waiting on the Messiah, familiar with the passage, we find also here his, his, he's a bit skeptical. And some scholars says, here we see Nathaniel the prejudiced one. Notice, he says, Philip says, we have found him, Jesus uh, of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's just a normal way of introducing people. Uh, in those days, in verse 46, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Galilee was despised. It was, a, it was looked down upon from Judeans. They kind of looked at lesser. They're, they're more carnal, earthly people. They were not well thought of. But if that was true, Nazareth was even much more despised and looked down on even the Galileans who were despised in some people's eyes despised them. So, you know, it just kind of all mixed up. Someone said it was probably a, a town rivalry uh, between football teams. I don't know if that's true or not. But nevertheless, you see this disdain. What you find in Nathaniel is that in his mind, he could not comprehend anything good coming from this backwater place. Anything good, as one commentator said, he could not put Messiah and Nazareth in the same sentence and make sense of it. In fact, his own understanding of what the Messiah would be and who he would be and where he would come from would probably be something of Judea or Jerusalem or some place of prominence, some place with prestige because he would be the one that they would hope on. He would be the one that would lead the nation, not from down the road, not from some place that we're like, there's nothing good ever come out of there. And yet this is the place that we find the Messiah coming from. We see his disdain. You know, I wonder 
If we don't have the same aversion to God many times, at least as we are standing in unbelief before Christ opened our eyes, can anything good come out of a 2,000-year-old book? Can anything good come from a guy standing and just talking about stuff in the past and maybe stuff in the future and all that? Can anything good come out of organized religion? How many of you ever heard anything like that? How many of you ever thought that? That's a more honest question. Can anything good come of this? There is this natural bent away from God as we come to understand our, ourselves being depraved. We're at enmity with God. Our own preconceived ideas who God might be or should be or who his Messiah or salvation should be. They all stick in our minds of this is the way things are. And, and God, when we open up his word and the, and the gospel is proclaimed to us, it really just blows us out of the water, doesn't it? And all of our notions and all of our ideas are, are being shaken up as we come to understand that he is much different than you and I thought. We begin to get petty when we come to understand God and, and even Jesus in our culture and Christianity. He's, he must be all love. Or other people look at him and say he's just too judgmental or narrow-minded or all the other excuses that we come up with. We're much like Nathaniel. And we're much like the people in Jesus' day. In fact, they resort to the same kind of rhetoric in John seven fifty and 52. He says Nicodemus had gone out before him and who was one of them. You'll be introduced to him in chapter number 3 of John. And he's saying to this multitude, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? That's simple, reasonable, isn't it? He replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. See them adjusting their tie a little bit when they say that. You know, no, Nothing ever good comes from that. Nathaniel's words live on in the mouth of the priest of the day. And yet God often uh, opens us, opens our eyes and surprises us with his prophet, with his son. Well, Philip told Nathaniel, verse number 46, he said to him, come and see. Isn't that simple? He doesn't give a debate. He's not arguing. He's not going through all this long discourse and discussion. He knew Nathaniel knew the scriptures. He, he knew uh, that Nathaniel was well aware of waiting on the prophet. He knew his aversion to Nazareth and, and his disdain for that, that area, whatever the region was. And yet he says to them, you be the judge of that. And sometimes that's what we need the most when we're set in our ways. That challenge to come see for yourself. That challenge to... Uh, to give honest inquiry, and that's what one writer writes to this. Honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice. Nazareth might be all that Nathaniel thought, but there is an exception, exception to prove every rule and what an exception these young men had found. So we find that he had some prejudice against Nazareth. He was a man acquainted with the scripture. And thirdly, I want you to notice of Nathaniel, he was a man who was without deceit. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, whom there is no 
deceit or no guile, depending on what translation you have. It just simply means he's honest. On the face value, you can trust him. You can take what he's saying, what he's thinking is what comes out of his mouth. He's, he's not got ulterior motives. There's nothing underneath that is deceptive, trying to, trying to gain a, a leverage or something over someone else. Would God give us more of those people in our society? People that are honest like this, and Jesus recognizes it. Now, the story is in connection with Jacob, as you're familiar with your Old Testament, who stole his, his brother's birthright. No wonder the proverb says brothers are set for adversity. So he steals his father's birthright. He lies to his father at the bidding of his mom. It's dysfunctional all the way through this. And lies to his dad, pretends to be his brother, steals the birthright, and then has to run off and, and run for his life as his brother seeks to kill him. His brother says, truly, he was named rightly. He was a deceiver. And he says, here is a true Israelite, though, the changed man, the one in whom there is honesty and there is no deceit, an Israelite indeed. Now, Nathaniel says what you and I might say, because Jesus is doing something here that is, is awkward. He is conveying for us, and John is telling us so that we might understand what is going on. He is peering into the character of a man that he has never met. It isn't the clothes which Jesus remarks on. Oh, I can see you're from Galilee. It isn't the accent which is thick and doesn't sound like a Judean or, or someone from Jerusalem. Uh, it isn't the, the other things which we tend to notice and we remark on. It's the fact that Jesus peers through all of these things and he sees the man for who he is. And he says, you are a man without deceit. So striking to Nathaniel, he says, how do you know me? Well, Jesus knew the kind of man Nathaniel was simply because Jesus created him. The Bible tells us all things were made by him. Without him, not anything was made that was made. They were all made for his glory, and by his power he sustains all things. And that includes the planets and the rocks and gravity and the stars and the dust and you and me both. In some ways we see here a, a man called a prophet of God, called uh, all of the things that the Bible calls. And here we see him encounter with one of his own creation, one of his own creatures. And he says, I know you, Philip, or I know you, Nathaniel, because, well, simply because he made him. Now, Jesus could have argued that, but he doesn't, but it is true. In fact, he says something different. Verse number 48, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree. You remember, Nathanael, you were under the fig tree meditating? Maybe you're thinking about Jacob, who knows? You know where you were? Well, I saw you there. Now, if you were there, would that seem kind of odd and weird? A bit creepy? Maybe I'm just the only one that's carnal. I don't know. It's just kind of odd. Someone come up to you. I've seen you when you were there. I've never met the man. There's no cameras, no deer cameras out there under the fig tree or anything like that going on. He didn't have his iPhone that he was looking. Look, there's Nathaniel. I'll get him. He wasn't doing any of those things. 
What he was saying to Nathaniel was, I, I knew exactly where you were and what you were doing before you ever knew me and where I were and what I was doing. That's true with every one of us this morning. He knew exactly where you were before you ever knew where he was. His omniscient, omnipresent God, the second person of the Trinity here, wrapped in human flesh and And here he is unveiling a little bit of that glory to Nathaniel to understand, I know you. I've seen you. Now the fig tree is one of those things in in the Bible days that was a place where a man went to think. It was his man cave without the cave. You know, it had shade. And he didn't go play video games in the man cave. He went and um, meditated on God's word. He went and thought about life and, and all the other things that were going on. This is a place where, where teachers would go and teach their pupils, where, where um, rabbis would teach their disciples in, in the shade of a fig tree. In one way, he's saying to Nathaniel, I was there, I saw you in the midst of your meditation before anyone ever come to you. It reminds us back of the psalm, doesn't it? Psalms 139. Where he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my paths and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high I cannot attain to it. Do you believe that? Christian, that's your promise. Creation of God. That's true with every one of God's creation. He knows us and where we are is a Savior who sees us. And God is acquainted with us. There's not a thought that escapes his notice. He's aware of every fear we carry, every concern that, that weighs us down. The prayers that we offer up and the meditation we offer up is not just echoes into the void, but it's, it's spoken in the presence of a present God. A God who sees and knows. Even Hagar found that to be true in her, in her state in the wilderness as she was sent out by Abraham with the son Ishmael. God sees. And here he wants us to understand that it is Christ who sees us, knows us. He sees us. I wonder how that might affect you. I'm still working on it in my own life. The thought that nothing escapes his notice, nothing escapes his view. is aware of all that we go through. And all that we do in in the alone, without anyone there, without the looking eye of your parent or your friend or your spouse, there's the presence of God. There's the eye of God to be seen. There's the knowledge of God. He knows. I wonder if that would not help us fight sin more seriously and soberly in our own lives if we come to understand more appropriately. God knows. God sees. We can pull the wool over people's eyes. We can, we can fool people for some time, but never God. He always sees. He's always present. 
that is not meant to only be a, a, a thing which sobers us up in the way we act in the solitude, but it's meant to be an encouragement to us because do you know that not a sigh, not a tear that falls from your eye in the solitude by yourself that God is not acutely aware of? Not a burden you carry, not a fear that lingers in the back of your mind like a bad taste that God is not infinitely and and that he is not familiar with. It's all known to him. In fact, Jesus emphasized this emphatically when he says he knows the hairs of your head. And that's to say there's nothing about you, no minor detail about you that God is not familiar with. Dear Christian, that is a word of comfort to you because it isn't just the fact that he knows you. It's the fact that he cares. It's the fact that he loves you. Even the gospel message, we kind of wonder if God knew the kind of person I was in our sinful state as some, some have wrestled with in their life. Maybe you've wrestled with it in your life. Maybe you wrestle with it now. If God knew the things I did or people knew the things I did, don't you know when the gospel's offered to you, God already knows? And yet he still invites you to come and see that the Lord is good. Invites you to come and, and be saved and healed and forgiven and blessed. You may not be Nathaniel, who is a man without guile. Many of us are not. In fact, Nathaniel himself had his own problems to face. Uh, but whatever you are, you come to that realization. God offers you forgiveness and acceptance in knowing you perfectly well. And I find that a comfort. Because you don't sneak into the kingdom of God under false pretense. Like, uh, got in. <laughs> I hope they don't find my yearbook. God's seen all the signatures on it, knows all the story behind the pictures, and yet he still throws open the door and says, Come unto me, all you heavy laden, burdened down. You see, we are meant to see that God is a God who sees. Christ is a Savior who sees us. Naturally, those thoughts are too wonderful for us, as the psalmist said in Nathaniel exclaims in this proclamation verse 49 Nathaniel answered him rabbi which means teacher you are the son of god you are the king of israel you're the one we've been waiting for now this is going back to the promise given to david in second samuel seven fourteen, often known as the davidic covenant where god promised david i will raise up an offspring after you who shall come from your body and i will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son But John wants us to understand in his gospel son of god just does not mean a ruling king it means a unique Son, no one like him, one that is equal with the Father and has come down from the Father, one who is divine and has come to show us grace and truth. And Nathaniel comes to this great confession after having his eyes opened by the Spirit of God 
in that encounter with him. You are the son of God. You know, our own confession is that way, isn't it? As God reads our mail through the, through the message or through the messenger and as he speaks to us and where we are and convicts us and calls us unto himself, the, the response of that is faith. And that's what you see in Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, I believe you are all that scripture says you would be. And I would say this, and Nathaniel will find out true, he is much, much more. You're the son of God. We vocalize these affirmations in our songs and in our statements of faith of who Jesus is. One song we sung, I think maybe even last week, came to mind. It goes this way. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our soul belongs to him who holds the days within his hand, what comes apart from his command and will keep it to the end, the love of Christ in which we stand. A blessed reminder, but it isn't just his deity that John wants us to see. It is his royalty. You see, many of us would wholly receive a savior, but not many of us want a king. Not many of us want to Obey the command of Jesus to follow him. And yet he is both, isn't he? Well, let me just uh, conclude as we see the end of this. Not only a Savior who sees, a Savior who seeks, but I want you to see, lastly, a Savior who supplies. We find that in verse uh, 50 and 51. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. It's the tip of the iceberg, Nathaniel. He hadn't even done his first sign or miracle yet. Just wait till Lazarus comes out of the grave and see what you think. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. And what Jesus is affirming to Nathaniel is the very same thing that is affirmed to us. Uh, The story goes back to um, Jacob's ladder in the book of Genesis where he is given the promise of God and God gives him that covenant promise that I will give you this land and I will give you a people. People will come from you and and I will give you blessing and protect you. That's after he saw the vision of this ladder stretching to heaven and angels coming down or staircase coming down and up. And what he's showing him, this is the means by which God uses or or heaven works upon earth and what jesus is saying i am that ladder i'm the conduit every blessing every every ounce of goodness and goodwill of my father to his creation is channeled through me all grace and love and joy and acceptance and belonging and and forgiveness and hope and anticipation and strength and, and courage. All of that is meant to be found in me, Nathaniel, is meant to be found in us, church, or in him, church. He is the conduit. The work of heaven on earth and the business that God gets done is done through Jesus Christ. The 
The vision of angels is that vision of God sending out his messengers on missions and all the other things that he has them do. And he's doing that upon the, the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Again, we're meant to see that. We're meant to understand that. We're, we're meant to be reminded of that. We know these things, many of us. But now we need to be reminded often. Speaking of Son of Man, as he concludes this, one of Jesus' favorite titles of himself, Herbert Lockyer, remarks. He says, as the Son of Man, Jesus is the true representative of the human race, not the second Adam in whom all are made alive, or the second Adam in whom all are made alive. He is the Son of Man, that is, man of man. Not Jew, as holier than Greek, not free as nobler than bondman, not man as distinct from woman, but humanity in all space and time and circumstances, in weakness and in its strength, in its sorrow and in its joys, in its death and in its life. As the Son of Man, Jesus knows all about our human needs and problems, and as the Son of God, he is able to meet every one of them. He is the ladder set upon the earth, but reaching up to heaven in the Incarnation. Deity took human form on earth. In the ascension, humanity was raised to heaven where the center of glory in humanity's dust glorified, seated on a throne. Well, dear church, we were meant to see Christ in all of his beauty. And over and over throughout the Gospel of John, he continues to bring us back to that reality of who he is. He is a Savior who sees and a Savior who seeks, and he is a Savior who supplies all of our needs. That is who he is. That's what we need to be reminded of. And the most natural thing of seeing him, the most natural thing for us as believers is to go and share that same message, that same vision of what we see of him with others as we see Philip with Nathaniel. Well, bow with me for a word of prayer. You may be here this morning and you don't know who Jesus is. You've never put your faith and trust in Christ. I would just encourage you, today is the day of salvation. He has come, left his throne in heaven to take upon himself flesh, to live among us and to, to endure what we've endured, yet without sin. More than that human experience, he has died on the cross for the for the penalty of our sins and our transgressions. The Bible says he did all of this in his mission to seek and to save those who are lost. And those who come to him, those who put their faith and trust in Christ, he says he will never reject. He will never cast aside. You say, how do I how do I how am I saved? How do I how do I believe? How do I receive that? Well, the Bible says, they that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's a good place to start. Just call on him, saying to him, God, I've sinned against you. I've disobeyed your word. But I believe you sent your son into the world to die in my place. Forgive me of my sins. I put my faith and trust in him to be my savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we... Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. 
Lord, thank you for this vision of Christ and help us to keep it in our mind as we go throughout this day. In Jesus' name, amen.